1972, Nixon went to China, where he met with communist leader Mao Zedong. Thanks to that bold diplomatic initiative, the United States and the People's Republic learned to peacefully coexist, living happily ever after. Well, not exactly. What Nixon called the weak that changed the world would help China become wealthier and more powerful over the decades that followed. But Beijing did not become America's strategic partner or a reliable stakeholder in what they like to think of as the liberal international rules-based order. To discuss what China's rulers have been doing, are doing, and intend to do, I'm joined by two scholars new to FDD. Nathan Pekarsik, a senior fellow at FDD, studies Beijing's military-civil fusion strategy and its competitive approach to geopolitics. Emily de la Bruyere, also a senior fellow, has pioneered novel data collection and analysis tools tailored to Beijing's strategic and institutional structures. She uses primary source Chinese language materials to provide insight on geopolitical, technological, and economic change. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased to have them with us today here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Uh, Emily and Nate, you know, in in normal times, I I meet and maybe break bread, have a drink with anyone who comes to work at FDD, but these are not normal times. So I've not had that pleasure and privilege with you. So tell me, as, as well as our dear listeners, a little about yourselves, about your backgrounds, careers, how you got into the think tank racket, uh, what you're trying to achieve. Emily, why don't, why don't you start? Thanks, Cliff. Thanks for having us here. This was, for me, getting into this world was something of a terrible accident. <laughs> um, I started studying Chinese right as it became clear and explicit in Chinese sources, if not in U.S. discourse, quite how ambitious China was and quite how offensive that ambition itself was. Um, And that really gave me little choice except to go into this world because it seemed to be such a dire threat and such a misunderstood threat that it became an obligation. You know, I'm curious, how old were you when you began studying Chinese language? So I began studying Chinese language relatively early um, in grade school. Mm-hmm. I started actually reading Chinese sources that gave more insight into this when I was in college. Hmm. Okay. Fasting, I'd like to know more, but we'll move on for now. Nate, talk about your background a little bit. Yeah, thank you, Cliff, and, and thank you for welcoming us so warmly to the FDD family. Uh, we're thrilled to be joining the team um, at this critical moment. Um, I got into this racket, I think a little bit more from the business side of things. Um, so I had worked and studied organizational behavior and organizational strategy and looking in the international business realm, um, had quickly noticed, you know, sort of over the past 10 to 15 years that China was playing an outsized role and gaining um, some possibly misunderstood or underappreciated international leverage in the business community. Um, and it was from that angle that I migrated more toward think tank and policy applications of that type of knowledge. Um, and I think, as you mentioned in the introduction, the, the concept of military-civil fusion, um, the, the Chinese approach of combining commercial and security approaches to develop new and comprehensive types of power um, is really what brought me into um, thinking hard about policy implications of the work that we were doing studying China. You know, it's it's my contention, I'm sure not alone in this, that it, you really don't understand the present if you don't have a grasp of the past. And I'm, I'm thinking in particular how we, how we deluded ourselves about China's rulers. 
I think they're within the foreign policy community and among liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats, there has really long been a, a, a conviction, faith perhaps, in the power of engagement, in the power of inclusion, and the idea that increasing prosperity would transform China into a member in good standing or a good neighbor in the global community. And by the way, I think many Europeans continue to hold this belief to this day. But, you know, it, it hasn't worked out the way people believe. Maybe, Nate, you start on this. I want to hear from both of you on this. But you recognize that at some point, tell me at what point, that's, that, that was a myth that we wanted to believe and we hoped it was true, but just wasn't. Yeah, I think that's, there's underappreciation of the fact that China had a hand in us thinking that way. I think that they, for a long time, have maintained a fairly consistent strategic ambition, um, which is to compete and overtake the United States on a global basis. Um, and I think that dates back, um, quite frankly, to the, the founding of the state. Um, but they've also been adept at understanding our optimism and our biases and our assumptions about engagement and integration. And they've, they've fed those and cultivated them and encouraged um, all of those biases that we have in our system. I think um, some of the work that we've been doing recently on under- understanding the roots of Chinese economic policy suggests that um, it, at least by 1981, they're developing an orientation toward international trade and international engagement that um, is not a market-based approach and never was and never intended to be. Um, but they certainly were very adept at labeling their approach as such and making sure that they cultivated friends and partners and allies globally and particularly in key European and and U.S. audiences to help um, promulgate that idea. You know, Emily, follow up on that any way you want, but it it also occurs to me that some people might say, look, the current ruler, Xi Jinping, uh, he, he has grand ambitions for himself for the People's Republic, but he he's different from Deng Xiaoping and others with whom it was possible for the U.S. to have fairly amicable relations. Do you think that's true, or is that sort of like hmm, people saying, yeah, Stalin was terrible, but he was a departure from Lenin, and as somebody who studied the Soviet Union for a long time, I can tell you that's that that's that's not precise. Absolutely. There's certainly something that's distinct about Xi Jinping, and that's his consolidation of power. But the actual strategy he's pursuing is not a deviation from the past decades and the leaders who came before. Nate was talking just now about Chinese ambitions with respect to the international economy that we see promulgated in official doctrine as early as the 1980s. There is a long-standing, emergent, continuous, deliberate strategy underlying China's planning what Xi Jinping does, but also what came before him, that has not changed. And even if you look at how the how Chinese policy or strategies are written, they have a paragraph in them consistently that lists the key thinkers that this builds on and says that this is drawing from Deng Xiaoping's thought. It's drawing from two markets, two resources. Um, it's drawing from a long continuation of growing Chinese plans, ambitions, thinking. And there's a the little anecdote on this one that is particular, particularly ripe on this subject is that China's two markets, two resources strategy, which is effectively an attempt to manipulate the international division of labor, is credited to a Chinese economist from the 1980s um, and leading CCP um, official who is considered to be the big liberal force of the 1980s. And in traditional U.S. analysis, we see him as the one who was going to make China open and a market economy and somebody in a country that the U.S. could cooperate with. Except, of course, he's also the person who coined the Chinese strategy with which they take advantage of our economic systems. Hmm. You know, it's worth mentioning there were dissidents from this prevailing view of China as an evolving strategic partner. Uh, particularly, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of Richard Bernstein and, and Ross Monroe, who back in 1997 wrote a book titled The Coming Conflict with China. And if you're familiar with that, I should just mention Richard Bernstein, who was the first Time Magazine correspondent in Beijing, later worked for the New York Times, 
He's an old, old friend of mine from going way back, with whom I'm still, still in touch, by the way. Um, uh, and he, but he and, and a few others more, more recently um, kind of saw this coming, kind of saw that there was, there was a flaw believed that, that China would evolve um, in a sort of liberal democratic direction of increasing freedom. You familiar with the book? You familiar with those theory with dissidents from this view? Yes, and I think uh, one of the things that's striking from the the early dissonance, if you will, of the prevailing wisdom was that they had experience on the ground in a broad based way. So they didn't parachute into China and meet with the barbarian handlers on an annual or biannual basis. They were there, and they were there enough that they saw. Um, you know, the GE factories that got stood up and also walked down the block and saw the Chinese factories that were stood up to illicitly steal the technology and operate, uh, you know, on the third shift uh, under the, uh, the guise of cooperation with Western technology and firms. So I think that there were, you know, these early voices were the ones that were able to peer back beyond the, the narrative that the Chinese provided to its partners in the United States and elsewhere and that were on the ground and could could see the way that the Chinese system wasn't implementing the changes and reforms that they were telling us they were they were aiming to. Right. And, and in, term, in Richard's case, uh, certainly uh, took the trouble to learn Chinese. So he was uh, he spoke Chinese and that that helps, too, because uh, in any place if you can speak the language, you can delve more more deeply into this is the society. I, you know, there were also those who who took a, a, a sort of middle view between optimism and skepticism or cynicism. And that would be the view that China might be satisfied uh, to be the hegemon of Asia, that, that, that if we just accommodated that ambition, they're going to be a major power and they want to be a major power in their region, um, that would satisfy their geopolitical thirst, as it were. But uh, that also appears not to be the case. And I'm going to <laughs> Emily, start us off on this, but we'll talk about some of the ways in which we now see uh, the, China's ambitions going global. Yeah, I think that's the perfect example of wishful thinking. Mm. Also, you know, delusion. Who, <laughs> what country out there that has the possibility, or person that has the possibility, is like, I know, I'm going to be, I'm going to settle for being like good enough. We're just going to call it here, um, mm. and that's certainly not what China's doing. It's certainly not what they ever intended to do. Um, and the cliche on this is to go back to ancient Chinese history and say that you don't have in Chinese history ever a origin story because China is being proud of being this eternal country, dynasty, empire, and they want to restore their foreign might as the world leader. Um, it's cliche, but there's obviously truth to that one. And it's eminently clear. If you look at Chinese investments, even when China started investing abroad at the birth of the People's Republic of China, they're all over the world. Um, there was never any indication that this was going to stop at China's borders. We get there, I think, very much by our own delusion, rather even than you know, messaging on China's end that's supposed to take us there. Mm, right, right, right. Uh, in this regard, just explain what China 2035 means. Yes, I think uh, it's a, a great demonstration of the evolutionary and developmental path that Chinese ambition and policy follows. So people are largely familiar now at this point with um, the Chinese Industrial Plan made in China 2025, which was focused on making China the world's workbench and formalizing its role as a manufacturing power um, that you know built on decades of deliberate industrial planning and technology transfer strategy, engaging with the developed world, as Emily indicated, from the earliest points of the state and then also the earliest points of its technological development. China has been a global actor. Its, it's venture capital funds approved by the state and invested in by the Chinese state um, made their first investments, not in China, but in the United States and in Israel, for example. Um, and China Standards 2035 is this newest developmental phase of Beijing's industrial planning apparatus, which focuses on seizing a definitional role in international technical standards. So where Made in China 2025 is about leveraging 
China's um, cost advantages. It's low cost labor. Um, it's massive population that can produce. It's regulatory arbitrage that doesn't care about the OSHA standards and environmental requirements that we might care about in the United States. Um, China standards 2035 moves beyond those enduring advantages and, and resources to lock in China as a, as a rule maker globally. So you may think of technical standards in a legacy case, something like rail gauges. Um, if you set the standard, if you're the standard setter for rail gauges, that means that your railway wheel assemblies have an advantage in the commercial market because you're setting the rules for what size and shape those wheel assemblies have to fit. Um, more technical, advanced, emerging examples that are sort of hot button issues today would be um, 5G, which is um, the mm. newest development in telecommunications that draws on um, a set of technical standards based on intellectual property. Um, the standards, the rules for this domain are set in um, a combination of government to government and industry associations that China has developed a very deliberate and centralized approach to competing at. So where the United States relies on its um, sort of diverse and um, siloed private sector to go and compete out in the world, China deploys its state-owned enterprises and state-backed enterprises with clear, deliberate mandates. So when a Chinese actor goes to 3GPP, which is the standard-setting body that sets standards for 5G, those Chinese actors go with a playbook from Beijing and are required to vote on the party line, if you will. Um, and if they don't, they face um, consequences at home. And China has a um, deliberate, um, state-guided, but enterprise-driven approach to international competition. So it's not a market economy the way that our um, sort of very meritocratic system is. It's not a purely centralized, um, state-guided system, but it's um, decentralized in a way that the state um, permits, but still controls and guides. And that brings some very clear advantages in terms of this standards approach. And the risk of this approach that China's deploying now is that it locks in gains for um, a generation and possibly more of some of these new and emerging technologies that have very obvious security implications, as in the case of 5G and potential espionage risks, but also in terms of economic returns, both in the near term and over the longer term. And, and am I going too far, Nate, if I say that what, what you're describing in simplified form would be for that China aspires to be the global standard setter, the standard by which everything is measured and judged the way you look to China to understand what you need to do and to live up to that. Is, is that sort of the goal there? I think that's very clearly the goal from the Chinese ambition at the state level and as promulgated down through the firm level of actors that are um, following this China Standards 2035 plan. Um, and I think it, it certainly brings a whole host of implications for the U.S. Um, private sector and for our, our security interests globally. Oh, and Emily, I'm going to back up for a second before I get into which I want to strategies and tactics. When you read the primary sources as you, as you do, can you pull from that how the Chinese Communist Party leadership views America, the country, the government, and Americans, and how they view Europeans? What's what's what do they really what do they really think of us? What do they think of us? I think the first. The first prong of this answer is what they think of us in terms of how they go about their strategic ambitions. So China aims, as you said, to become the global standard setter, um, but otherwise to write the rules of the future world. Hmm. China's positioning for doing this is based not just on using its own strengths, but also on capturing or diverting or siphoning those of other players. So as it positions with respect to the US, with respect to Europe, with respect to the globe, it identifies certain advantages that it can turn into, into its own favor. It identifies positions that different countries or institutions have that it might be able to co-opt or to use as springboards. And it also identifies vulnerabilities that it can manipulate. So 
Europe is a prime example of this. Europe is a source of advanced technologies for China, with which it can deploy its technology-driven standard strategy, and that it can access more easily than it can access the technologies of, say, the United States, because we have more resistance. We have little, a little more investment review, if not entirely effective investment review. Um, so that's a key thing to take advantage of in Europe, also in Israel. Then the next step of for Europe is that they can be used as a partner through which to amplify China's global platform. Beijing sees the present contest as one largely determined by scale, and Europe, if it can be brought into China's camp, or at least if it can be separated from the U.S. camp, means that there is no rival to China's scale. And the next step is, of course, as a competitor, because all of China's strategy is premised on an ultimate goal in which China sets the global rules and is the unquestioned global leader. And so to the extent that Europe is supporting a multilateral system in which that's not the case, Europe as a force is a force to be subverted. That might be an image overall of Europe within China's, within China's strategy. Many of those points are similar for the U.S., but the perspective vis-a-vis the U.S. is much more immediately competitive. The U.S. is the rival of the moment, is what has to be taken down. And this is as much a narrative as it is a tangible contest. If China can show itself to have to the world or present itself to the world as having an advantage over the U.S., it increases its force in global affairs um, because this is very much a contest of perceptions. And that's the battle that people are paying attention to right now. And let me, let me try this on you, Nate. There are plenty of people in the United States on the left and the right who really want uh, America to be, they would say, more restrained. Some would say more isolationist, to withdraw, not to be global policemen. I think President Trump used that phrase when he spoke to graduates uh, at West Point the other day. Um, if America is tired of being leader of the free world, tired of being some would say the global hegemon, whether that's fair or not. Maybe it is. Um, China is certainly willing and able to take that role on, eager to take that role on. What I'm not sure people have thought through somehow, but what that would actually mean, because in part it would mean China believes that authoritarianism is superior to democratic governance. Um, so you would have a world increasingly authoritarian, a world in which there would be, I think, decreasing freedom. Elaborate on that or disagree with me if you want to, Nate, but I do want people to think about what it means if China decides to pursue this rivalry, this competition vigorously in the United States says, yeah, that's fine. We'd rather be more like Denmark if we could. Yeah, I think you're spot on, Cliff, and I hope that this is the reality that we wake up to and wake up to it in a bipartisan way so that we can lock in a competitive orientation because quite frankly um, China's expanse and pace um, means that we we don't have a ton of time to figure this out Um, and the core reality is that the Chinese Communist Party has a set of orienting values ideals and objectives that are antithetical to all of ours Um, meaning those of the United States and our allies and partners abroad. Um, You don't really need to look too much further than the social credit system, its business-oriented focus, the enterprise social credit system in China, um, to understand how different Chinese rule over the world would be. Um, So those are easy examples that then I think you can recognize that they inform and are acted on in a whole host of attacks on individual freedom and rights that we're accustomed to and value here in the United States. Look to Xinjiang, look to Tibet. Um, I think geopolitically, we've been provided any number of cases from um, Chinese increased assertiveness. If you want to start in 2010, when they cut off rare earth exports to Japan as a result of a a geopolitical spat over disputed territory, Um, you can look to how they froze diplomatic relations with Norway after um, a Nobel Prize was given to a Chinese dissident. Um, that's the type of behavior that will be the defining feature of a, of a Chinese ruled world if we allow that to happen and restrain ourselves and 
restrain our allies and partners and um on the all the way down from state to state relations to individual freedoms this is not the world that um i've been led to believe is uh, aligned with american values and, and um hopefully that that reality again is the one that sets in and sets in in a bipartisan way for american leaders one phrase you use, I want to make sure people understand it, I can assume everyone does, social credit system. And I'm going to, again, I'll take the license to oversimplify, but you correct me if I'm wrong. The idea of a social credit system is that literally everybody in China, everybody, we're talking about what, 1.5 billion people, are going to be identified by the government and rated by the government on their loyalty to the Communist Party line and their lack of any dissenting speech, thought, anything like that, they will. This will be absolutely essential to how they're viewed and what happens to them. That they, I mean, this. If I'm describing this right, this is right out of right out of Orwell, isn't it? It's right out of uh, Big Brother. Did I did I misspeak when I described it that way? That's absolutely it. Um, I would add a couple things, which is that companies are in there too. Companies are rated this way. So this forces the commercial sector to operate according to China's incentives as much as the individual. And the other thing is that this is big brother with a big tech twist, because this is actually, it's thanks to information technology, far more powerful as a form of authoritarianism. And also it reaps a profit. As China imposes the social credit system on its population, it collects large scale information which in an era of data as the new oil is hugely Hmm. valuable and gives Beijing a strategic, a commercial, an information advantage globally. And that applies also to the entire commercial sector that's on the social credit system as well. One of the ways we like to present this is as an Amazon, like all the things we worry about when we worry about Amazon and big tech in the US, but consolidated and in the hands of an authoritarian state that's using them not just to make money, but to enforce its coercive authoritarian agenda globally. And, and, and you know, we, 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 there's no question that China is technologists, it's, it's, it's scientists, uh, it's industrialists. They've achieved a lot. They're, you've got to give them credit for that. But it's also true to an extent I don't think most people quite understand uh, a significant percentage of the wealth China has created over the past 10, 20, I don't know, maybe 30 years, um, derives from unprecedented wholesale theft of intellectual property, in particular from the United States, thefts of data, of information, of technologies, uh, just on on an almost unimaginable scale that we, and by the way, we have not been able to to prevent that. Go ahead, Nate. Maybe start off start us off on that. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's pervasive and enduring. Um, I think the Huntsman Commission on Intellectual Property Theft put the price tag at something like six hundred billion dollars a year, which is hard to fathom. Um, but that really is the scope of what we're talking about, and um, it speaks to I think China's deliberate centralized approach um, and how that's applied against. Um, our norms, values, and assumptions in setting up the global system as it exists today. So we welcome China into the WTO in 2001, and we assume that they'll um, abide by the rules as everyone else who participates. Um, But what we didn't understand is that they would integrate themselves and definitely figure out the the rules and orders of that system such that they can continually circumvent it. Um, The mechanisms that exist within the World Trade Organization for dispute resolution are slow and bulky and consensus-type mechanisms that a single actor, if they're um, quick and focused and centralized, can evade and evade in a continual and en masse basis. And that's what we've we've witnessed. We've ushered them in um, with open arms, quite frankly, and some have prospered and benefited. And certainly, um, there, there has been a growth of wealth and development within the the Chinese state, which is to be respected and um, admired. But many times we're talking about that coming at the expense of U.S. manufacturers, at the expense of U.S. workers, and quite frankly, at the expense of Chinese workers. They don't um, have the types of 
um, social safety nets or the types of environmental and occupational support and risk prevention in China that we have here in the United States and assume that our trading partners will abide by. Um, so there are just as many losers as there are winners, I think, in this global um, rise for China. Um, and again, a lot of that is on the hands of the United States and the assumptions that we've, we've held and um, watched be proven wrong and wrong again by the Chinese approach. Yeah, then they've uh, another thing they've done that, that I've written a little bit about, about, as you know, is the extent to which they've managed to essentially take over and, and really subvert uh, international organizations. If they put somebody that they like or may or may not be a Chinese national as the head of it, that individual will report to them and answer to them in a way that it'll say an American or a Brit going to an international organization would not because they'd see themselves as an international civil servant working for the global good. The most obvious and egregious example of this is probably the World Health Organization. The head of that, who is an Ethiopian, Dr. Tedros, uh, I, I think very clearly felt himself for various reasons beholden to them. And I think that they subverted the mission of the World Health Organization. Uh, and that cost uh, a lot of lives and a lot of a lot of livelihoods around the world. Um, I don't, but, but we have so much to go on to. Uh, people also need to know, and FDD just done a report on this, uh, something called the, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, which is part of the global strategy uh, that, that China is using. Maybe just give a quick description of what that is, Emily, and, 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 and what, it's, uh, what it's brought about so far and what it seeks to do. Yeah, Cliff, if you'll forgive it, I might take a step back and just talk sure. about how all the different bumper stickers in China's state planning overlap, um, which is to say that they all do. People get confused or overloaded because there are so many different Chinese state plans. There's Belt and Road, there's China Standards 2035, there's Made in China 2025. And it seems like just this influx of a patchwork system. But all of them respond to a fundamental deliberate and enduring state strategy, which is codified primarily in China's Go Out plan, which was first launched in the 1980s. And the premise of Go Out is that Chinese enterprises and actors should go into the international system in order, as you just said, to subvert it, whether that's subverting international organizations or research and development ecosystems to steal innovation. And so that's the overall ambition. Within that, you have different industrial plans and also different mechanisms that carry it out. China Standards 2035 and Made in China 2025 are industrial plans that spell out how China is going to pursue the go-out strategy within particular sectors in particular timeframes. Belt and Road is a mechanism with which China propels all of this. Um, and it's deeply interconnected to all of the other plans and all of their other ambitions. So effectively, it's China's connection of a number of different countries into a new belt and a new road, one of them maritime, one of them land. And China talks about it in terms of creating international connectivity. What this really means, if you cut through all the Chinese opacity and propaganda, is a way of incentivizing Chinese actors to operate according to Chinese state incentives in these countries to pursue either specific commercial objectives or to invest in points of global of strategic leverage. So whether that's a port system or a mine in a certain country that's going to give you access to a global limited resource. The connectivity part of Belt and Road is probably best understood in terms of the standards question itself, because in doing this, these Chinese companies are supposed to be exporting Chinese standards and therefore interconnecting the world, but interconnecting it according to Chinese rules. All of which goes to say that Belt and Road is a bumper sticker. It's a way of operationalizing the larger Chinese geoeconomic strategies. Is it, is it going too far to say that, that one might view this as sort of 21st century imperialism, kind of neo-imperialism, as it were, a new strategy for imperialism. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's even actually, there's even a colonial aspect to it, I think, as well, because we know that, for example, in Africa over the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, 
numbers I don't know are, are firm, something like a million Chinese have essentially settled in Africa, often in their own communities, communities that don't necessarily respect the laws of that country. They're there, they're staying there, they're doing what they're doing, um, but they're essentially little Chinese colonies, aren't they? Yeah. And when you read what China writes about this, they're very explicit about the idea that if they send out these industrial colonies to Africa, they can get all the advantages of Africa's development, whether that's low cost of labor, Mm. access to resources, or the beneficial trade policies that Africa gets in a global system and make sure that all of those go to Chinese actors. Mm. Uh, and well, there's a lot of other things we can we, 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 I should include here, um, but I do want to mention this or have you talk about it, Nate. We have great numbers of very bright Chinese students at American universities. Um, we have a lot of Chinese who stay here and work in technology and industry. There is increasing concern uh, about the numbers uh, of them who, for whatever reason, loyalty or coercion, feel that they have that, that, that their primary loyalty has to be to the government back in China. In the recent days, we saw that 54 scientists uh, at the National Institutes for Health lost their jobs uh, as part of a probe into foreign ties. In more than 90% of the cases we're talking about, um, ties are to a Chinese institution. Uh, I know this is something you, you've looked into a little bit, Nate, maybe talk about this problem because we, you know, we want to have Chinese students in here. We want to have Chinese visitors and tourists, but there's a danger. Yeah. And I think that the, the core danger lies in the degree to which the Chinese state is able to centralize and apply what it is that they, they harvest from abroad. Um, so I think that we assume um, that a rising tide lifts all boats to some extent in our orientation toward um, global economic trade and um, free and open flows of technology and commerce. Um, and, and that's good and well for everyone. The, the issue with China's approach is that they're able to definitely deploy what, what it is that they harvest from abroad for security and coercive economic advantage. So we were talking earlier about the scope of Chinese intellectual property theft. Um, That isn't going down, and it's not going down because China uses a very broad toolkit for harvesting technology, which includes the academic um, engagements that we're talking about now. Um, And some of those cases are very explicit, and some of them um, are indirect, and the individuals involved are unwitting tools or pawns in um, a broader game. And that is unfortunate, but the reality is that China does deploy what it harvests from abroad for coercive leverage. And because of that, we need to be very thoughtful about um, understanding the scope of China's threat and understanding the toolkit that we have to, quite frankly, defend ourselves from that theft. Hmm. And um, there's also, I should mention, a military, a conventional military buildup. The Chinese are spending more and more money, I mean, great amounts of, of money, we have estimates, um, on conventional weaponry, on strategic weaponry. Uh, they're, military, well, they're, they're turning reefs into islands and militarizing, militarizing those, those, uh, those new islands and then claiming the, the, the waters around those islands. In recent days, there have been military clashes between China and India on disputed territories along their borders. We've also seen in recent days Chinese belligerence towards uh, Malaysia, Vietnam, the Philippines, uh, Indonesia. I would say some expressions of hostility towards Japan, Australia, other states in the region. Um, And of course, I shouldn't leave this out, at at least to some extent, threats against Taiwan, violations of its airspace, and in violation of a of a treaty uh, it made with 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 the British, they are not allowing two states two two systems to continue to function. And for fifty years, they promised they would. From nineteen ninety seven in Hong Kong, they are increasingly saying Hong Kong is ours. We're going to do with what we want with it. Um, Emily, talk. I mean, I've brought up too many things. Talk about any of that that strikes you when you, where you think there's a point either I'm not understanding or you, or you want to emphasize? 
Certainly no points you're not understanding. What I would emphasize is China's military civil fusion strategy within all of this. Mm. We have these models for assessing what the military balance is or where there are threats or how the U.S. can or cannot defend itself that are based on military to military analysis. China pursues a grand strategy called military civil fusion, uh, which again, as with all of these, is decades old. And military civil fusion entails the integration of military and civilian ends, means, and ways for the sake of an overall national comprehensive power. And one of so any number of implications of all of this, but one of them is that China uses its commercial and its civilian positioning internationally to establish a new type of power projection. And that has immediate, significant, really dire implications for our global posture military and not military, that we risk not taking into account in our calculations of what the balance is because these aren't the fields we're looking at. So one of the prime examples is um, Chinese port information systems. As China invests in international ports globally, they also export um, an information logistics system that effectively connects all of these into something akin to a Facebook for maritime logistics. We're sitting here waiting for China to turn its port investments into naval bases. And we have a model for how much of a threat these port investments are based on whether or not they end up housing the People's Liberation Navy. But what we're not taking into account is the degree to which Beijing's information network connecting all of them might give China's Navy, say, a global advantage in terms of maritime information or might give it the potential to restrict or to shape the flow of goods from one port to the other across the world, which might give it the power to, say, blockade at low cost without having to deploy maritime assets and without us realizing that it has established those positions of power projection. And of course, the other prong of this, not only are we not factoring it into our assessments, but because we're not, we risk fueling it. China's port information systems, again, aren't just at the ports where it invests. Beijing also partners with existing multilateral institutions, bodies, industry associations to connect its port IP systems to them. It also uses commercial actors like Alibaba to proliferate this. And as long as we're cooperating with those because we don't see them as competitive offensive players, we're allowing these information systems and one like them into our global order so that China can claim this power projection. I want to, uh, Nate, have you explain just a little bit, because uh, people hear all the time about 5G, about Huawei, and I'm not sure they quite understand why this is a threat. I mean, if they've got better technology, which they do because the government decided it was going to invest heavily, a lot of countries in the world say, why shouldn't we have this? This is going to be a whole new generation of technology where the Internet of Things we can control uh, all kinds of things in our house through, from our cell phone. It's a wonderful thing. But I've, I've heard it compared to, say, oh, turning over during the height of the Cold War uh, all your telephone and telegraph lines to the, uh, to, to, to the Politburo in the, in the Soviet Union. Um, that there's no way if, if China is the supplier of this of the technology, both the software and perhaps the hardware, there's no way that you're going to keep them from essentially controlling that in those instances when they want to do so. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's the right conception of the, the scope of this threat and what's at stake in the current, um, you know, much, much hyped and buzzword laden world of these emerging technologies. Um, I think the, the Chinese concept for this is, referring to what we might call the Internet of Things or the Industrial Internet of Things. Their term is, um, and Emily will correct me if I'm wrong on this, is something more akin to the Internet of Everything. Um, and, mm -hmm. and that, quite frankly, is how they're applying their set of prioritization to these new and emerging domains. So if they're able to, as you say, define both the software and the hardware, um, that gives them this first order advantage in terms of information gathering, information asymmetry, having an advantage for the um, espionage type risks that we're talking about. But then it also gives them the rule setting and 
quite frankly, kinetic power that comes with controlling the movement and exchange and flow of everything that will transit this new realm of connectivity. Um, So in the United States, even in our military conceptions of, um, we talk about um, phrases like having a a third offset and boiling that down to um, having faster, um, more focused battle command networks. Um, If those battle command networks are built entirely on Chinese hardware and drawing on Chinese gear and Chinese source code, um, we might be in a little bit of trouble if the adversary we try to apply those against are um, those in the Chinese Communist Party. One thing I, I, I want to at least touch upon, within China, there is tremendous repression of ethnic and religious minorities. And this is ignored by, for the most part, by the UN, by the UN Human Rights Council, by any number of transnational organizations supposedly dedicated to human rights. Uh, Tibet is a very separate culture that has been conquered and is being colonized. Um, The religious freedom in Tibet is severely constrained. The Uyghurs, who are Muslims, we believe there's something like a million of them in re-education or concentration camps. That doesn't seem to bother friends of, of the Chinese government in Pakistan or in, throughout most of the Middle East, who normally are so upset by the repression of, of, of Islam. Um, Christians, of course, are oppressed within China as well. Um, I could go on, but essentially, you don't hear from Europe, um, from people in the human rights community, again, from the UN. It's amazing to the extent to which China, Chinese rulers have managed to just say, you keep quiet, and they've said, okay. Emily, you may take that. Yeah. In part, this is a matter of the battles China has picked. No one wants to claim the Uyghurs as their cause. But in part, it's also about the way China has gone about this. In Before Beijing became as explicitly authoritarian, offensive, repressive as it is now, it made sure that its interests were tied to those of the key international players. And so now we're in a world where even though it's increasingly evident and it's impossible to ignore Beijing's repression and authoritarianism, the key players, whether that's the human rights organization or the WHO, have interests that are indelibly tied to Beijing's own. And so who's going to stand up for the values that ostensibly they believe in if that goes against their immediate incentives? All right. I think we have time for one more subject in a way it's the most important subject. So I wanted to leave enough time for it. And that is based on all we've been discussing, all you've been studying and revealing, attempting to expose to the U.S. government and beyond that, what are America's strategic options at this moment? Are there, are there several that we should be considering or are there not too many? Do we have not have too much in the way of choice? Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, I think there, well, there certainly are options. Um, and uh, I think part of our emphasis is, is hoping to convey that um, in some of these cases, our options will be more constrained moving forward, and some select cases they'll be constrained very quickly. Um, I think they stem and flow from starting at the top um, options to change the narrative. So we've been highly responsive and reactive to the story that China's been telling about itself and the misinformation and disinformation that it spreads globally. Um, we're starting to stem that flow. Um, But there's also a lot of opportunity space for the United States, its allies, its partners to draw on the enduring base of values, priorities, um, ideals that we talked about earlier, and to use those as basis of a new narrative. Um, And then I think from there, there are defensive measures that um, we've been starting to take, some of our allies are taking as well, the concept of investment review, so stemming the flow of Chinese capital, capital that enters the United States to buy access to technology um, that's similar with um, trying to cut back on visa access for Chinese military researchers coming into the United States. Um, I think the opportunity that we need to seize moving forward is finding offensive ways to also take advantage and, quite frankly, cause problems for China. Um, Across the board, we've thus far largely just been defensive and 
reactive, um, but we have enduring advantages in terms of our economic vitality, the diversity of our um, economy and our partnerships globally. And then also, quite frankly, we have um, very real military advantages vis-a-vis the Chinese. Um, So I think that those are pillars on which we can draw to develop a strategy that um, pushes back, defends against the vulnerabilities that China's exposed thus far, and also starts to cause problems for the Chinese Communist Party. Emily, you want to talk a little about the same subject? Yes, I'll start by seconding everything (laughs) Nate said. Um, And this is in part my bias, but one of the critical things we also have to do is figure out how properly to understand and how to monitor China. Again, I'm biased. I don't think you can do that without comprehensively and carefully looking through what China is saying within China and how it's allocating resources. We don't currently have an apparatus in government or in non-government that is able to do this at a large scale and is able to do this in a way that accounts for how China conceives of power and how where its discourse exists and then how it manipulates that discourse um, in an outward-facing way to influence U.S. perceptions. So as we mount this strategy, we also have to mount an equivalent monitoring and empirical monitoring system so that we can see where we succeed, where we don't succeed, how things are evolving, and what China is saying and doing. Well, this is a a hugely significant set of of issues, challenges, threats. Um, The world we leave to our children, I think, depends to a great extent on what we do and how successfully we we, we do it, how we, we meet this challenge. I'm just very glad you're working on these problems. I'm glad you're working on them at FDD. Um, We will talk again. For now, thank you, Emily. Thank you, Nate. And let me say thank you to all of you who are listening and trying to understand. Join us again here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.